Welcome to your 2012 May edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Brian Walter. And for the next three months, we are going to explore, debate, scrutinize, unpack, repack, comment on, occasionally mock, and continuously celebrate the art and business of speaking professionally. So let's get to it with a segment on Selling the Biz. All right, and we are with Colleen Stanley, president of Sales Leadership. All right, Colleen, the first time we talk with you, you shared two questions that you have all of your salespeople be able to provide the answers to you. What were those two questions? The first question is, what was the prospect's problem? Second question is, what is the problem costing them? And there's three answers I'm looking for there. The first one is financial impact. Can we? Did they actually do a good job of dollarizing the cost of the problem? The two other ones that still can get you business is strategic impact. If I don't solve this problem, how does it impact the prospect's uh, business future? Perhaps it's reputation, market share, etc. And then the third uh, impact is personal. Sometimes for prospects, now this might be the least one I can get money from, but for some people, I will pay money just not to work as many hours. I'm working weekends. I'm not seeing my family or kids. So it's uh, financial, strategic, and personal. Right. That's very rich and and complex in a good sort of way here. It sounded very smart. It did sound very, like, is this in a book, I'm guessing? Yes. Funny. Yes. (laughs) Um, so what my thought is, okay, so let's say we have salespeople working for us and you ask them the question, what is their pain? And I'm going to guess most salespeople who are worth their salt, as they say, can say, oh, here's, here's the customer's pain. Here's what they said. And when you do your follow-up question, which is probably, I'm guessing, the more important follow-up question, you know, how much is it costing them? You mentioned the thing, dollarizing their pain. Correct. If they're struggling with that, uh, do do you expect them just to know how to do that, or do you actually train them how to get those answers to those questions? I have found with 95% of the salespeople we work with, veterans or newbies, you have to train them. So, for example, what they will do often is they'll hear information and mistake it for evidence. A prospect might be actually very open in saying, you know what, We're, uh, we need to update our technology. We're falling behind. All you heard there was information, and the salesperson actually thinks they heard pain. See, I need to upgrade my technology. That's just a statement. So the implication behind that would be, well, what's happening because you're not upgrading your technology? And let's say just for a hypothetical, well, we're losing business. Well, how much business are you losing? Well, last week we lost a piece of business. And how much was that piece of business? Well, it was about 50000 So how many of those pieces of business have you lost in the past? Well, this is our first. Well, how many do you anticipate losing in the future? Is that just perception or data? So what you're doing is you're having a financial conversation. A downtime is a one. So you could get this with customer service trainers or speakers out there. We're having too much downtime. Well, what's the impact of downtime? Is it a bunch of employees standing around, not doing their job, missing deadlines? If you miss the project, are you doing redos? If they're, uh, if they're not motivated, you'll hear things like, my team isn't motivated. Well, that's not pain. What's the impact of not being motivated? Well, they're not doing quality work. And when they're not doing quality work, how is that impacting? Well, we're doing redos. Well, how much is the cost of redos? And now you start getting to some financial implication as well as strategic. So this is the dollarizing of yes. their pain. Mm-hmm. Now, with your salespeople who could call on prospects, are the prospects forthcoming? Do they say, well, you know, Bob Schmidlap, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we lost one $50,000 gig. I expect to lose 10 more. And that's a uh, half a million dollars and I'm probably going to get fired. I mean, do they spill like that or do they have to 
pull it out of him? Very few prospects spill it. And I don't think it's because they're actually trying to withhold information. If you study the concept of pain, most people want to deflect. And also, most people aren't, aren't really thinking. And so your job as a salesperson is to be that critical thinker and facilitate conversations. So here's what you'll hear a lot. I, it, it's costing us a bunch of money. And so the salesperson just leaves it there because they get a little lazy in the conversation. And they'll say, well, when you say a bunch of money, is that 10000 $10 million. I mean, that's kind of a big range. I sure. want to throw that out. But you need to be the one that starts clarifying that conversation. And if they can't tell you, like I had an appointment yesterday that I gave them a no because I finally, it was halfway in the conversation. It was going all over the place. And I said, where's the gap? I'm not hearing a problem. And, you know, they really couldn't tell me the financial impact. So I said to them, I think you need to get some other things in place before you consider sales training because right now I'm not hearing financial impact. And they all looked around the room and they agreed with me. So you talked yourself out of a job. I talked myself out of a practice proposal because Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend time writing practice proposals. So it would be business down the road, but it might not be until a year. And I think they appreciated the fact that I wasn't sitting there trying to sell them something they didn't need at this time. So by turning them down, you upped your credibility and I'm guessing, since I'm starting to get to know you through this, that you're saying that when they're able to dollarize their pain, then they're not going to hassle you about your fee as much. Well, when you can facilitate a conversation where they actually, through the math, as I call it, the problem is costing them potentially 500000 2 million, sometimes the numbers get bigger. Are they really going to hassle about your training fee, your speaking fee? And if they do, then you have to come back and say, hey, listen, we probably need to take a look at these numbers. Because if this is really the number you're losing, I think I'm having a problem understanding the reason for the investment to solve it. What am I missing? And you do that very nicely, by the way. Wow. <laughs> okay. So as, as speakers who might be selling ourselves, because mm-hmm. maybe we don't quite have the sales staff um, yet, mm-hmm. uh, what about if I were to say, well, Colleen, that makes perfect sense if you're selling to IT or sales or something like that, but... You know, I'm selling customer service, or I'm selling team building, or Mm -hmm. I'm selling uh, dealing with difficult customers. You know, how is my HR contact, do they even have the ability to dollarize their pain? Well, the HR contact, that might not be the economic buyer. So when you start studying sales, that may be a user buyer that's being affected by it. But if that HR director can't write a check, then that tells me that you've got a problem in your sales process, which means we've got to get to the person that can write a check. Now, you can build the business case with the HR director, and that's where you do the math. So let's say they say lack of team building. Well, what's happening because of lack of team building? Well, uh, people aren't getting along. Well, that doesn't give me anything, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and when they're not getting along, what's that look like? And that's usually when you find that projects are getting missed, they're taking longer quality, And then when they're getting missed, are people staying, are they working overtime? What's the cost of overtime? So when you're spending money on that budget, where is that coming from? Does it affect your future budget? How is it affecting you, Ms. HR or Mr. HR Director? Is is there ever a case where they, uh, this may sound crazy, but that we're really talking psychic dollars? I mean, you talk about dollarize that there's real pain, but they don't really look at it as specific dollar pain, but it's a currency of pain that you could you could sense it's a high value, or are you saying, no, pretty much if they can't put a real dollar figure to it, then uh, you want to be wary of that? 
I would say if they can't put a, a financial dollar, truly sometimes they're not the financial buyer, which is generally more your problem, mm-hmm. or it may be a nice to fix, not a need to fix. And I do ask that a lot during a meeting. If it's kind of going around in these circles, and and I've got a pretty good gut for it at this point, and so I might stop the meeting and say, you know what, this sounds like a nice to fix problem, but not a need to fix problem. You actually use those exact words. Absolutely. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and how do they usually respond? One of two things happen. They will agree with you and go, yeah, you're right. We just want to complain. That's why we met with you. <laughs> All right. And that's okay. Uh, uh, and maybe you're I should like, have well, ferreted. You will validate my parking now, right? Okay. <laughs> I, I should have ferreted it out more. Or the need to have, here's what happens when you challenge people. See, I'm looking for data. And, you know, Dan Sullivan, on a, a, a former VOE, said it brilliantly. You need to go into the meeting with the buyer hat on. They need to sell you. So unless somebody can convince me they've got a big enough problem to solve, we're not going to go any further. See, I know I have the solution if you have a problem. Prove to me that you have a problem. Wow. I'm just going to ponder that one. That's good. That's good. All right. So that gave me the answers to the first two questions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, uh, what, what is the pain? How much is it costing them? What's the third question? The third question for me would be budget. Now, there's a whole bunch of other ones, decision-making, how do they make them? But if I had to narrow it down to three, share with me what their budget was. Now, here's what will happen a lot of times when you're meeting with a prospect. They'll say, "Uh, we have no idea. Just put something together. Not all the time, but when I run seminars, I see half the room shaking their head. Now, this gets into some emotional intelligence skills where you need to be assertive enough to state, you know what, I understand most people don't have an idea. However, people in similar situations have invested between this and this. Comfortable with that? I'm getting a range. I will tell you, though, 50% of salespeople out there, when they say, not real sure, just put something together. Mm-hmm. Just go along to get along, and then they come back, they present their proposal, the person flips to the back page, and they say, this is too much. So what I learned early on in the sales training business years ago from a, a senior consultant, he says, Colleen, they always have a budget, and it might not be on the P&L, it's a choking point, because how could they tell you it was too much? You've got a budget. And mm-hmm. that was actually, uh, I, I wish I could think of the person that taught it to me years ago. But the, the, So they've always got a budget. We're just not sometimes assertive enough to get it. The other thing once in a while, depending on, on the type of prospect you're calling on, is they will say, I'm not comfortable sharing that with you. Now, that's kind of ridiculous. Well, then I'm really not comfortable <laughs> working for free. So now what you have to recognize is usually what's happened, and we're real big on calling the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. uh, truth-telling. Yep. So usually what I'll say is, you know what, it sounds like you've been burned in the past, that when you did share numbers, somehow the consultant came back and just magically laid out a solution that ate up every one of your dollars. Is that what we're talking about? They're like, yes, cool. Yeah. And, and so yeah. I'll just say, you know, that's not the way we work. Um, But what I do need is to have a range that I can at least give you some options. And then if I have to, and I really don't have to too much anymore. Uh, 13 years ago I did because I really wasn't that good. Um, I'd have to get into more of these tougher conversations. But I'd say, but if you don't trust me at this point to share your budget, I'm not sure how good of a partnership we're going to have. Because at the foundation of a partnership is trust. What do you think we should do? That's pretty bold. Well, if if, uh, it's bold or it's Mm -hmm. truthful. Yeah. Because really, if you, you know, we all talk about trust. If you're not willing to share your budget, you don't trust me. Mm-hmm. 
And if we're supposed to be these big partners, so you, if you don't have those bold conversations, you are going to get treated like a vendor. And you're getting price shopped. They're not respectful, not giving you time. There's a whole bunch of weird things that happens in the vendor So you're category. Uh, kind of laying down the gauntlet here and saying we need to step up and have courage, have those hard conversations, put it out there, and just call it. Oh, unless you like writing practice proposals. I just really don't like writing proposals unless I know there's a reason for it. And here we are with stuff speakers should buy. And I'm with Tim Durkin, CSP. Tim is a leadership change management and customer service kind of guy. He works with, and I quote, clinical and non-clinical staff in healthcare to create better patient outcomes. Tim, I'm thinking you're a high-level business content kind of guy. Well, I'd like to think so, and I hope my clients most of all think so. Okay, good. So you're not some flighty woo-woo speaker who comes up with weird ideas just because it seems like a fun thing to do. No, it's implementable. Implementable. See, just the fact that you said implementable lets us know that you're a hard business guy. All right. So what's the item that all speakers should buy? Well, actually, I think the item that all speakers should buy is what I call a magic medallion. So a big old customized coin. It is, in fact, a big old customized coin. It's about the size of the old 50-cent piece that you might be familiar with. And I'm here you go. Listen. So it's a substantial thing. It's, It's thick. All right. So I'm looking at this and going... How the heck did you come up with the idea that you wanted to do a coin? Well, the way I came up with this is back in 1969, I actually won the lottery, uh, the draft lottery. And, <laughs> and so I was invited to, to join the military. And rather than join, I actually went in the Marine Corps. And I was in the Marine Corps for a while, and I became acquainted with uh, two things, um, this challenge coin and drinking. And the way the they two, go together. Well, they, they do in this particular instance. What would happen is... If you were in a bar and say that someone said that they were in a particularly elite Marine unit or uh, maybe it started actually in the Army Air Corps where people would claim to be part of a a specific unit. You might see uh, SEALs say this, uh, SEAL Team 6 or something. And what would happen is someone would overhear that they claimed to be in a specific elite unit. And they were in that unit, so they would come over to where the speaker was, reach in their pocket, and take out what is called a challenge coin, which are issued to only members of these units. They would take the coin in their hand, slam it on the bar, and say, I challenge you. The speaker who declared that he was part of that unit must then reach in his pocket, produce his special unit coin, and slam it down and say, I accept. However, the fraudulent ones or the forgetful ones sometimes didn't have their coins with them. Failure to produce the coin resulted in the original claimer buying drinks for the entire bar. (laughs) All right, so you had this idea of coins on the brain. So how did you go from a challenge coin, which you recognize from your years in the Marines, Mm -hmm. to I should make this for my business? How how did you make that leap? What were you thinking? Well, what I wanted to do is I I like a lot of audience participation, and I'll I'll get a volunteer to do something for me, to, uh, to play a role or to answer a question or otherwise put themselves out there. And I asked them to be a volunteer, and when they do so successfully, I thank them graciously, uh, 
And I then say, for your effort, for volunteering to do this mandatory thing, I then produce this coin and I say, I'd like to give you a magic medallion. If you do what's on either side of the magic medallion, you will find magical improvements in your work and personal life. And so they seem very grateful for it. And what I have just done is created a good feeling, not only in the person that was my volunteer, but it's recognized that I also gave them something special and the rest of the audience is also grateful. Now, since you said if you do what it says on either side, so obviously there's a customized message. What does your coin say? Well, my coin has, uh, and you can, I I could design this coin and the listeners Mm -hmm. can design their coin any way that they want. But two of my key points are about gratitude and thankfulness and how it can work in the healthcare setting. So on one side, I have a picture of an eagle and it says in Latin, gratias ago ergo sum, which translated is, I thank, therefore I am, Mm -hmm. which is a play on the guitar. So on the other side, one of my other key points is I show a picture of a mountain. They they designed a picture of a mountain, and I, I have the phrase in there that I get them to ask every day, what do I have to let go of in order to get what I really want? And they see that, and it's a reminder to them every day. Uh, about the gratitude and one of my other key points. So these are kind of like callback lines from key uh, messages of your programs. Right. And then it also, I, I believe, I can't read upside down, it has your contact information or it's got well, your Yeah, website. funny thing is that um, uh, both sides have my contact information. Funny. My yeah, website. funny. That's yeah. funny. Now, yeah. I'll be uh, honest and uh, say here was my initial reaction. We were at an NSA event. And I heard you talk about the coin, and I apparently my facial showed some sort of mild interest. And you handed me, and I'm sure I smiled, and I took the coin. And inside, you know what I was thinking? (laughs) Who wants a lame, stupid coin? I mean, that was my first reaction. But then what happened is through the rest of, you know, the hour-long workshop that we're in, I found myself kind of putzing with it, playing with it, spinning it around, flipping on my fingers, just to have something. It's kind of like, you know, a finger games, finger activities. And I wound up putting it in my pocket and taking it home. And it's been like a year. And every single time I'm on a conference call, which are legion, mm-hmm. I basically have my little finger activities where I do things. Now, I, of course, am not one of your customers or prospects, so I actually can't give you money. But I'm going to guess that this is something that people don't throw away. No, they don't throw away because it's got a substantive weight. It's uh, done in a polished bronze um, it looks very, very valuable, and they, they do hold on to it. And I actually get emails back. People want to buy them. People buy them for their group and um, and hand them out. Uh, and then I actually tell them who the vendor is so they can design their own coins because uh, the vendor requires extremely small quantities to set a die. Yeah, and it's interesting because I still... I tell you, I was still a little skeptical, mm-hmm. and I was walking with my client. I was working with one of my clients, and we were talking about recognition programs. And out of his mouth, this is like a vice president of HR. I hear the words, "So you know, it would be nice to give people something. You know, maybe we could give them like a coin or something." And then, bam! I immediately thought of you, and I said, "I need to keep Tim away from this guy because <laughs> he'll take my client." No. Yeah. Uh, so, so this. How long you've been doing this? I've been doing it for about uh, eight months. About eight months. Mm-hmm. 
And if I may be so bold to ask, mm-hmm. what, what do these coins cost? This is not some cheapo, like, guitar pick. This no. is a substantial thing. Well, after you, the first time that you order, you pay for the die setup. Sure, sure, and, sure. And I also paid for the design. The designers at this company, uh, Coins for Anything, are very, very good. And after that, uh, this particular coin costs $2.36 each, mm-hmm. which is cheaper than any brochure that I could possibly produce. And uh, it has gotten me a, an awful lot of attention. As a matter of fact, it's so memorable that I would point out, Brian, that this is the reason that you asked me to do this interview is because you've been playing with the coin for Mm -hmm. approximately a year. And I wanted another one. And I figured now that you're here, you're going to give it to me. It's right there. In this edition of Point Counterpoint, we have Dr. Mary Kelly versus Carolyn Strauss. The topic, you are your own best salesperson versus... Outsourcing and partnering is the best way to get sales and marketing done. No one can sell you like you can sell yourself because nobody knows who you are, what you're capable of, and what your background is like you do. So having somebody else sell you, I don't think it works. I think it works for the reason that in many cultures, people are raised to not self-aggrandize. That means people are going to be more modest about the things that they do and the products that they sell. Nobody, nobody likes to hear someone brag on and on about themselves. In certain cultures, especially in Asia and especially in Great Britain, if you talk on and on about yourself and you try to sell yourself, it is going to be a complete turnoff. I'm not saying to sell yourself to everybody you meet. Hi, here's who I am and I'm fabulous. That's not what I'm saying. But if somebody's interested in what you do, nobody can sell. And when I'm talking about selling, I'm talking about closing. See, there's a different conversation between marketing and outbound interest and research than... Selling is finding out what somebody needs, can you offer it, and can you come to a financial arrangement about it and then get it on the calendar. That's that's selling, and that doesn't happen usually in the first conversation unless you're really good on an airplane. Unless it's a referral. And in that case, we can use the Bill Cates model and we can utilize referrals as one of our best selling points ever. Because when we get a referral from someone else, the person giving the referral knows you, knows your product, and is representing you. And the second thing is when you do get that referral, you work really hard to make sure that you are not disappointing either the person who gave you the referral or your client. So Actually, that's interesting because that's a different kind of conversation. Are we responding to people who are calling us because we've been referred? And clearly, they do need what we do, and we've been recommended as the person to do that. So two-thirds of the sale is done. Then it's just making the financial agreement and getting it on the calendar. That's fine. And this is why testimonials, of course, are so powerful because it's someone else telling someone how powerful, how great you are, and it's their perception. Remember, reality and perception are two different things. You can know that you're powerful and strong and the best in your business. But if nobody knows that or nobody perceives that, then you're not going to be effective and you're never going to get that sale. But here's the thing about testimonials now that I'm noticing in the world that we're living in with LinkedIn and Facebook and everybody being your quote friend. The only testimonials that are valid to me are people who've actually seen what I do, benefited from what I do, and then can really talk about it because that's that's a little tweaky you know to, right. to get somebody to get a testimonial from somebody who doesn't know you i don't put them up and I, I maybe that's me being a little bit picky but if you haven't look if you've read my book 
and you love my book, great, give me a testimonial. Don't say it's a great book if you haven't read it. Except you make a great point about how the social media aspect has changed how we do testimonials and referrals. But it's so much more powerful to have somebody on their Facebook page, on their LinkedIn page, say, I saw Mary Kelly and she was fabulous. Even my saying that is not as good as me saying, I saw Carolyn Strauss and she was fabulous. So social media has allowed people now who may not otherwise give you a testimonial, give you that written statement, or get on the air and broadcast you to say, by the way, I read Carolyn Strauss's book, The Code, and it's great. That's more powerful than you saying, I wrote this book and it's great. Yeah, but now we're talking about advocating and evangelizing versus selling. I think no one, back to my first point, no one can sell you, which is close the sale. You know, we talk about selling and marketing and they're two different things. I mean, okay, so let's talk about bureaus for a second because it's it's such an interesting topic I find for NSA and that really is someone else selling you. But I think that here's the challenge with bureaus. They could sell me or you and it doesn't matter to them which one of us they book as long as the client is happy, right? Right. So having a bureau sell you, it's kind of, it's kind of scary also because they don't know what you don't do. True. Right? Only you as your own salesperson know. I mean, I got a call from someone who I had done some presentation skills for and they said, hey, Carolyn, can you come in and do a program on ethics? I said, um, no. And they said, no, it's a full fee program. Will you come do it? And I said, absolutely not. I know what my business ethics are, but I'm not going to come tell your people about ethics. That's not my expertise. But why A I bureau like- would, would have might have said, oh, you like, you like Carolyn Strauss? You want her? Great. She can come do this program for you. And then I'm stuck delivering something that if I don't know I can give 100%, I don't want to do it. But here's why I love speakers bureaus, because okay. they know the clients better than I do. Yes. And if I've never worked with that client before, and that speakers bureau works with them year after year after year. They've been to those conferences, they've been to those conventions, and they know what the missing piece is. So therefore, when they go to propose me for a conference or a convention, because they know the needs of that client, they know exactly the niche I'm going to fit into, and they know that I will research that client, I will make sure I know their business practices, I will make sure that I get into the head of their audience, because they know me well enough and they know the client. So they become this matchmaker for the two of us yes. and they're selling the client to me as much as they're selling me to the client so I love 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 my speakers bureau the key to what you just said is that they know you well enough and yes my point is nobody knows you as well as you do now there's the other piece of this too if you are the only person who does what you do let's say you're Dale Irvin right or you're the O'Shea's right and you are are so specialized in what you do and you are the only person who can deliver that, I think it's easy to have other salespeople, outside salespeople, right? Because they say you want sketches that are like The Daily Show. The O'Shea's are it. They're the couple you're going to book for that. However, if you're looking for something on presentation skills or gender communication, there are probably a hundred of us in this um, industry, especially in this association, and why are they going to come to me? They're going to come to me because they've heard about me through an advocate or a testimonial or something. And then when they call me, it is my job to sell it. 
And that's true, but what we're talking about is the difference then between advertising and marketing and branding and right. the actual sales. So when I'm talking about people selling me, quote, selling me, I'm talking about they are advertising for me, they are advocating for me, they are evangelizing for me on behalf of me. And my best referrals come from people who know me well, who like my work, and who then turn around and recommend me for people because they know me and my work. Have you ever gotten a contract that you didn't talk to the client first? No. Would you want one? I would always talk to the client before a final contract to make sure, just to dot the I's, cross the T's, and make sure that we were really that good match. But I've had such good luck with speakers bureaus. I mean, I've had amazing luck with speakers bureaus because they have done their homework for me. So they say, hey, I've proposed you. You're a done deal. We want a conference call just to work out the details. I'm pretty committed and they're already committed. I have never backed out of a deal with the Speakers Bureau because right. it wasn't a good fit because they did do their homework and they already sold me to someone else. So all I had to do is go in, make sure that I clearly understood the client's needs right. and then delivered. So for me, that was easy. That was fantastic for me. Mm, it- and here's the other thing. Nobody, Carolyn Strauss, sells me as well as you do. I know. And and nobody sells me as well as you do. Exactly. So, I mean, that's... There we have it. All right. We are now with Joe Sharon, CSP and HOF. First question, Joe, what's HOF? Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. It is the same as uh, the CPAE in the U.S., it's called the Hall of Fame in other countries. Okay, so it's uh, it's not Hoff like David Hasselhoff. No. Okay, because that, that could have been. All right, you are president of Ethos Enterprises, Inc. And one of the things you do, you do keynotes, short format training, long format training yes. around ethics. Yes. Yes, and so obviously tied into leadership. But we want to kind of talk about your tenure with the Ethics Committee with NSA. We're not going to say how long you've been or how recently or not in case someone had a interaction with you on an ethics type of thing, but you've seen a lot of things over the years on what speakers do to each other or don't do. Would that be fair? That's very fair. All right, Joe, here's what I'm most curious about is when you think of the frequent type of ethical complaints or issues that speakers have, who tends to make those issues? Is it really the newbie speaker or is it the more experienced speaker or is it pretty much anyone who talks into a microphone? Well, there's two kind of ethical issues that we see the most. One of them comes mostly from the newer speakers, Mm -hmm. and the other one category comes mostly from the more experienced speakers. So let's start with the newer speakers, some of the mistakes that they make. And again, they're not bad people. I don't even think they realize um, what they're doing. And I'll I'll tell you a a couple of stories. I personally actually had a, uh, I spoke on a convention many years ago, Mm -hmm. and I had a speaker. A uh, new speaker. A new speaker Mm -hmm. that was in my audience. And I got an email from that person uh, about a month later saying, hey, I was in your session. It was one of the best. It made the whole convention worthwhile just hearing yours. Your, so so uh, far, session. so good. And, and he says, and I bought the, the tape from mm-hmm. your session, and I got your handouts. Would you mind sending me your slideshow that goes with it? Because my clients are really loving it. Wow. Yeah. And actually, there was a story that was around a number of years ago, and um, somebody might correct me if I'm wrong, but it was was someone like Zig Ziglar or a very well-known name that actually, a newer speaker, again, copied his speech word for word 
went out selling it to audiences and doing it to audience and he was so good he was getting standing ovations he was so proud of himself he actually had himself videotaped and sent it to Zig Ziglar saying look how good I am so I mean if they, they don't know they're doing anything wrong so by this doing is that. truly a case of ignorance yeah yeah and so from a uh, so again we're still talking about newbie speakers who again obviously plagiarism where they're right. they're taking whole programs or huge portions of programs or key yes. stories or aspects of that or yes. apparently wanting the visuals yes and what happens when they discover they can't do that for the most part do they become educated on it and then change or they're digging in their heels and they want to find some way to justify it what's the reaction to most newbie speakers once the hammer comes down and they realize oops this isn't allowed okay my response is going to be more anecdotal than statistical okay but i think it is fairly statistical but anecdotally what we find is the speakers that end up being successful say oh my goodness i was so stupid uh, i'm so sorry i'll never do that one again and they end up going on to be successful there's another group uh maybe 50 percent of them that say um no i'm gonna go even steal someone that's even from someone's even better than you <laughs> and they don't they don't make it in the business uh, that's the good news in the end mm-hmm. they don't make it so it's kind of like a bad real estate agent yeah they sell a few houses but eventually they can't take care of clients and they're going right. to drop out of the business. And I think why that is, is because clients, especially today, are looking for someone who has depth. And I have even heard from very experienced speakers that many of us would all know that have been in the business for a long time will come out and do a wonderful talk for an audience. And then the CEO will come to them and say, that was great. Now we want you to come back next month and implement that in our organization. And they don't know how. Okay. And this is happening. So, especially with newer speakers, when a client hires us now, and I'm, Brian, I'm sure you're even noticing it, they don't just want a speech. They want the depth that comes behind it uh, to affect organizational transformation. And a plagiarist can't do that. And a plagiarist can't do it. All right. So that's the most common thing you think see with new speakers, type of ethical violations. But you said there's just as many violations that you've seen anecdotally over the years with more senior speakers. Yes. What What error or mistake or egregious decision do they make? Books. 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 You see, uh, someone once said, if you copy from one person's book, that's plagiarism. If you copy from 20 people's books, that's research. research. Right. We've all heard that. But the problem is a lot of people are taking that very serious. And they think that's okay. And they will actually hike a whole chapter out of somebody else's book not even change the titles, not even change any of the words, anything. And they they don't realize that this is a wrong thing to do. Now, these are senior speakers. And these are fairly senior speakers, or they, mm-hmm. and they won't give attribution. I got to tell you, we all do it. And I bet everybody listening has done a form of this, including myself. You'll hear a great quote from somebody. And, you know, I heard this great quote from Brian. It says, blah, blah, blah. And you'll you'll say that for the you know for the next two three months you know as Brian always says right, and then after a while you say I heard a quote one time blah 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 and then a year later you're saying, as I always say, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and just kind of it's called boil the frog, right? It's kind of a process of osmosis. Osmosis. It you becomes right. your quote. That's right. And that's uh, that's a common one for all ranges of speakers, newer new speakers as well as experienced speakers. So here's a question, Joe. Having seen speakers get snarled with each other, 
uh, usually having to do with the material. You know, this is mine, this is yours, you took it today. What has been the best technique that you've seen for resolution? Is there certain things like whatever you do, do this, or whatever you do, don't do that? If I'm a speaker and suddenly uh, I discover I go to a website and I see that oh, this guy or this gal is using my stuff, any recommendations on the best way to resolve things like this? Yes, it's always best to contact the person directly. And, and if you can work out a resolution between you, it is always the best. If you bring somebody to the ethics committee, it's now recorded and it's out of your hands now. And if three weeks later you call the ethics committee and say, oh, it's okay now, I've worked it out, sorry, it's too late. It's already in the ethics committee's hands and it's got to go through their process. So the first thing I always say is try and work it out before you do anything legal, anything with the ethics committee, try and work it out and come to a resolution between you, whether it's compensation or a cease and desist or whatever it is that's going on. As a last resort, then come to the ethics committee. Now we will try, as the ethics committee will try and get the two parties to work out a resolution because that's part of the, the role. However, it still has to go through the process, and if there's consequences that's going to be applied, they're going to be applied even if you've already worked it out. Let's say you stole from this hotel, and the hotel called the police, and the police come, and they catch you. And you say, oh, I've gone back to the hotel, and I've given them their money back, so everything's okay now. The police will say, no, it's not. You stole. You're going to jail. Just really, that was a theoretical example. Just of clarifying. course it was. Okay. <laughs> Because I paid for those robes. Yeah, what okay. did have that robe? All right. <laughs> All right, here we are with another edition of Protecting the Biz with our favorite speaker slash lawyer, Francine Ward. Now, Francine is technically a business and intellectual property lawyer with a focus on copyrights, trademarks, publishing law, and social media legal issues. So, Francine, which topic are we covering today? Protecting your copyrights in a social media setting. Protecting your copyrights in a social media setting. Okay, so let's let's talk copyrights here. So, maybe I'm slow. It, it could happen. Uh, <laughs> but isn't it, I thought the definition is that as soon as you create something and you fix it in a tangible form or some of the other voodoo legal words, then it's a copyright. Was I sort of close? Not even close? Actually, you're, you're pretty close. Uh, the legal definition for a copyright is it's an original work of art or authorship that's okay. been reduced to a tangible form. So if okay. you've created something, it's original with your mind, you've mm-hmm. created it yourself, and you've reduced it to some sort of tangible form, then you automatically have a copyright in that work. Automatically. Automatically. So I, yeah. I create a blog. I... Uh, write a self-published book. Yeah. I create a video, take an a audio picture. program, take a picture. Mm-hmm. So I've got a copyright here. So what's the problem then? Well, the problem is there's more if you really want to protect it. The law says you create that original work, you reduce it to a tangible form. However, if you want to really have some protection, you need to do a number of other things. Now, really protection here. Okay, so let's say I create a video. And I, uh, you know, I, obviously I created, I wrote it, I produced it, all me. So it, it's truly mine. You're saying that's not protected. Let's say someone takes it and puts it on their website and puts their name on it. And I go, whoa, whoa, whoa contraire, my friend. Uh, I'm going to sick Francine Ward on you because I have a copyright. Or don't I? So the first question I would ask you is, yes. have you registered that copyrightable work? And Probably so I'll not. ask you that now. Yeah, no. 
And if you say to me that you haven't, then I'll tell you the law does not allow you the opportunity to sue someone or file a lawsuit for copyright infringement unless you've registered it with the U.S. Copyright Office. Okay, this is the part where you hold the phone, hold the horses. It's tricky. Okay, so you have a copyright. Yes, but if someone rips you off, I can't actually sue them. <laughs> I, What's I know, the point it's of having useless. a copyright? I know it's kind of useless, but if you take that next step and yeah. register it, then you have the protection. And it's not very expensive. It's not like a trademark where you have to spend hundreds of dollars to protect your copyright. It's only $35 if you so do article, it online. book, I have a copyright, but it doesn't actually protect my copyrighted work unless I register it. Right. Okay, so I should probably ask the follow-up question because there's not people seething like me going, and we won't take it on you because you didn't you know, actually make the law. Okay. So how, how do I register? I mean, I've done the trademarks before, mm-hmm. but how do you register? Like, let's say I do a video. How do I register like a video? It's easier now because you can do it online, which is really great. I mean, the copyright office sort of lagged behind the trademark office, and it took years for them to allow us to do this online. But now you can. You go to www.copyright.gov, and okay. copyright is spelled C-O-P-Y-R-I-G-H-T. Not and W-R-I-T, I spell it right. exactly, not W-R-I-T. So you're right, not you wrote it. Got it. Right. All right. So, so it's copyright.gov, copyright.gov mm-hmm. and on, you'll see the, the uh, dashboard. And in the upper right-hand corner, it says how how to register a work. And there's a little E in a circle and you click on electronic copyright office and you follow the directions. It's so fill about in the blanks. Third, it, there you it's go. really simple. You can you can do it yourself really, but mm-hmm. you have to know what you're doing and sure. filling out the form can be a little complicated, mm-hmm. but if you can get through that form, you can upload your like let's say if you have a video, yeah. let's say if you have an ebook or if mm-hmm. you've got photographs or something, you can upload them or if you have a regular book, you can go ahead and fill out the form online and then download the shipping label, and then the U.S. Copyright Office gives you 30 days to send in the hard copy. So, so it's, if, not it's not a, not a difficult... digital product, you have to send them a tangible copy yes. of it. Where do they store all these things? There must be a huge The Library amount. of Congress. I see. Okay, so basically what you're saying, if we truly want to protect our copyrighted works, we need to submit to the government here every single thing that we create that we wish to truly protect. Well, I think that's the bottom line, you know, and you have to determine if it's really important content. So I'm not going to do that for a blog post, but if I do a video where, like a single blog post, but if I do a video that I'm trying to sell and make money on, that would be kind of like the continuum I'd need to weigh. Well, I'll tell you, if you have a blog and you're creating original content on a regular basis, And the blog you really like, and it becomes a very popular blog, you might want to consider protecting that as well. Okay. But if I'm lame and I have a blog that hardly reads... Then you don't care. No. Okay. Got it. Okay. Well, that pretty much lets us know then. All right. So registering. Got it. Need to do that on anything we actually care about. What else do we need to do to further protect what we care about? Well, I think a really simple step that people can start doing now is actually put the copyright notice on all their work. Copyright notice is no longer required. But it's a really nice step to let people know that you claim ownership. So the notice symbol is the C in the circle or the word copyright written out Mm -hmm. or the abbreviation COPR period. And then you have the year first publication and then you have whoever owns the copyrighted work. Well, it might say C in the circle, 2012 Francine Ward period, all rights reserved. And I just add that to bolster it. But that's how it looks. So here's a question. So when it goes to who owns it, for example, Mm -hmm. okay, there's there's Francine Ward, the individual, but if you're a corporation, because you incorporated, would it be Francine Ward Incorporated, back off baby, Inc.? 
or would it be you as an individual? That is such a great question. I mean, such a great question because it really is a business judgment decision. You know, for some people, they might want to have all of this content under their personal name. For mm-hmm. others, they might want to bolster their company. And it depends on what kind of company you have, you know, how valuable the company is. And the more intellectual property you have in the company, the more the, the more valuable it is. So it really depends. But I will tell you what I recommend to clients is not always doing it under the company name because unless it's a company that's really established and you're going to keep that company name if you change it down the road or if you dissolve the company you're going to have to assign those rights to whatever the new entity is more paperwork. so and and, yes. and and more money so mm-hmm. i suggest to clients you know it, it's probably better if you put it under your own name but not always it really depends on the individual client I have a client right now, and we're having to change every single one of his trademarks and copyrights and reassign them because his company just went into default. And he's starting a new company, and so all of his trademarks, because he wanted them under his company name, were all under that. Similar follow-up question. Uh, let's say you're a woman. Well, actually, you are, but you know, let's say the fictitious speaker woman out there, and uh, her name is Barbara Schmedlap. Okay, Barbara Schmedlap, that's, that's her maiden name, and she's very prolific, and she's got 32 registered copyright items with the government, all right? She gets married, and she decides Schmedlap is a horrible name, and she's going to go with her now husband's name, which is Smith. All right, so she's now, her last name's Smith. Does she need to go and re-register everything? No, she doesn't have to. She can keep them under her own name. And it I'll tell you, this gets to be a little tricky because it also depends on what state she's living in. If she wants the property to be considered hers and her husband's, if she's in a community property state, she'd have to transfer it over. Now we're getting to like marital it, it, law Yeah, here. Okay. it gets a lot trickier than you really care about. But I will say this. I would never have a woman, I would never recommend that a woman put it under her married name just because what if she gets divorced and then she's got to reassign all those things over. I would say put it under your individual name. So if she's got it, keep it. Exactly. I say keep it under the individual name and then you can do whatever you want with it down the road. But if she gets married five or six times and changes... Five or six times, really. Then it becomes costly and really a pain. You're so unromantic. Five or six times. Wow. All right, so last question here when it comes to protecting, protecting the whole thing. Okay, so I've, you know, it's truly my work. I've copyrighted, I've created it, I've registered it, I use the right symbols, okay, and I don't have to reassign it because of, you know, the name change thing. Is there anything else I need to do going forward to protect my copyright? The last thing I think I'd suggest is monitoring. Monitoring. You know, a lot of people just don't pay attention once they create content, just like with the trademarks. You know, they don't follow up. They don't consistently look at the market and see if someone else is using or stealing their work. And I say you can register, you can do all that other stuff, but if you're not paying attention and someone's using your content and you don't do anything about it, even if you try to sue them down the road, they can always come up and say, well, wait a second. I've been using it for years. You've never said anything. You obviously don't care. And that could be and The a- court might go too bad, so sad. That's right. Wow. So I say monitor your work. After you invest the time and money to protect it, to register it, to use the symbols, make sure it's your content, then you want to just make sure that it's protected, that you're monitoring it. All right. So once again... Scared Straight with Francine Ward on protecting the biz when it comes to copyrighted works. 
All right, here we are with Donna Cutting, CSP. Donna is a keynoter, customer service training expert and author. Donna, your area of expertise is what? Customer service and employee engagement. Yes, and you and 3,000 other speakers. Yes. yes. <laughs> so the reason we're talking to you, Donna, is that you went on an interesting journey or transformation going from a relatively, shall we say, generic kind of way of describing customer service training that you did to a really interesting one. So tell Thank us, you. how did that come about? Well, I think, as you say, how many people speak about customer service? And Everyone. Yes. And I think, like many speakers, when I first came into NSA, you know, I just tried to be like Patricia Fripp and be mm-hmm. like Jeannie Robertson. And it was really when I started to tap into um, who I am authentically that my brand identity and the way that I differentiate that topic came about. So that's interesting. So your initial kind of brand differentiation, first, you wanted to be a reflection of who you were, to be more you. Right. And who the heck are you? I yes. Mean, so, in other words, so where did you go to tap into it? What aspects of your personality or your style did you say, I need to find a way to make this work? Right. Well, who I am is someone who loves the entertainment industry. Did so, you have a background? Have you- yeah. I, my degree's in theater. I dabbled in acting. I, you know, I love theater. I love movies. I'm an award show junkie. An award show junkie. Yes. It used to be my dirty little secret. Now it's a tax write-off. So you're, you're yeah, out. Yes. You've yes, added Yes, I'm out. Okay. <laughs> I'm out. So I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about customer service, and she was describing some ways that she wanted to, uh, to what I would say, roll out the red carpet for her customers. And I thought about this concept of treating your customers like stars Mm. and because it's tapped into something that I'm interested in I couldn't sleep at night you know I didn't write a book because NSA said I should write a book I wrote a book because I literally could not sleep from the excitement of the concept of red carpet customer service so that's what shouted out to you so that the grand metaphor for expressing your new kind of customer angle was basically red carpet treatment or Yes, exactly. How do you, if Brad and Angelina walked into your place of business today, mm-hmm. how would you treat them? And wouldn't it be cool if we could treat all of our everyday customers like that? Um, but then the other piece of that is that the red carpet itself has always been an, uh, a symbol to me of making people feel important, special, welcome. Uh, my grandmother actually used to roll it out for relatives that would come home. Uh, those relatives who had moved away, they'd come home and she'd literally roll out a red carpet. Do you have a very eccentric grandmother? Yes, <laughs> yes. But she knew how to make people feel important and special. And really, that's what customer service is about taking that person in front of you and making them feel important and special or like. You know, a Hollywood celebrity. So your grandmother had had props. Yes. Literally. Yes. Okay. Yes. My grandmother had props. So so let's talk about. So that was the concept where you said, "Aha, yes. okay." Right. So rolling out the red carpet that became your grand uh, metaphor. And you said you literally wrote the book. What, what was your book called? Uh, the Celebrity Experience: Insider Secrets to Delivering Red Carpet Customer Service. All right. So before, how were you positioning your customer service training and? 
content? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> really, I, I think I tried on many different hats. Uh, mm-hmm. I tried to find interesting stories. And like I said, I I think, you know, there were years where I tried to be Patricia Fripp and years mm-hmm. that I tried to be Jeannie Robertson. And it wasn't until I tapped into something that was authentically me that I think my audiences started to relate more with my brand. All right, so so Donna, so you so you have the brand? Yes. You literally wrote the book? Yes. How did this affect your business? How did prospects or clients start reacting to you differently once you had that new expression? Well, I think First of all, they got to know me, you know, yeah. they, they finally, they got me. They, they really, got you. Right. They like you, but they really do. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, and so that helped me connect to my audiences better. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it, you know, when you have something packaged it, where there's a theme that... It's a concept. A concept that other wraps around your message that other people can relate to, it just becomes easier to sell. I mean, finally, I knew who I was. And once I knew who I was on the platform, mm-hmm. my audience and my uh, my clients went, ah, oh, that's who she is. And now we know how to use her. Now, did you find that the sales process itself actually went much faster because there was a concept? Yeah, I, I think so. And also because I had more confidence. Okay. Yes. You know, finally I, under, I understood what I could bring to the table um, besides just content, but also the way that I positioned it, that it, it just became easier for me to sell to other people. Well, that's probably a good thing. Yes, yes. yeah, it definitely was. <laughs> All right, so let's now go beyond the whole, okay, brand from a, a framing marketing point of view mm-hmm. and let's go... To, the actual delivery side. So mm-hmm. now that you've shifted from, hi, I'm generic trainer, woman in customer service, or I'm, you know, Patricia Fripp, Jeannie Robertson, right. wannabe, right. you know, <laughs> so now you're, now you're your own authentic self. Yes. But, and like you says, Barbara, or Glenna Salisbury, so you can now be the more you, right? Right, right. Okay, she didn't really say that, but that's okay. I paraphrased says, it. Right, what Something kind, like that. Unique, yes. What she said. She says so eloquently. Yes, yes. that I butchered the paraphrase. <laughs> So how did this red carpet treatment, the whole celebrity experience type of thing, affect how you delivered your material? Mm -hmm. Well, first, let me say that always, regardless of what my brand identity is, Mm -hmm. the first thing I always do when writing a speech or designing curriculum is think about what my audience needs, Mm -hmm. you know, what they want and how I can best connect to them, you know, Mm -hmm. what stories and examples would work. But then on top of that, I bring this red carpet star treatment uh, flair to it. So I literally own several red carpets. You might see me walking through the airport with a big red bag, and that's my red carpet. That was it, your grandmother's red carpet? No, you got your own. no, I've got my own now. Didn't yes, steal I'm the big okay. time, right. <laughs> so, so kind of a, a signature prop for you it's, is right. literally rolling out the red carpet. I literally roll them out. And and I use uh, I use what I call keynote theater. Keynote I open, theater. Yes, I open all of my Is that like TM? Keynotes. Keynote theater, TM. Yes, yes, thank you. Oh, I like it, okay. <laughs> yes, uh, so I literally roll out the red carpet to start all my presentations. Mm-hmm. I go out in the audience and I pull up and involve them in little plays that illustrate my point. So I'm bringing that, that theatrical so br- aspect. So you actually create a theatrical celebrity Hollywood-esque experience 
exactly. to your platform. Exactly. Now, I'm going to guess that you probably did, because it's kind of who you were, you probably did components of this earlier. Yes. But now it actually makes sense. Right. <laughs> Bingo. All right. So you that's gave right. yourself permission to do what you most wanted to do anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that translates. I mean, you know, obviously, if I was up there giving sports metaphors, you know, the audience would completely see through that. But mm-hmm. they can see my enthusiasm for the subject matter and then the way I position it just translates. All right. So now I've heard a a rumor. And because this is going to come out after the Oscars, we're going to kind of go future into the future, but then talk about the past as if it had already happened. Okay. So... Red carpet, Oscars, what's the connection? Oh, well, I've had a lot of uh, wonderful opportunities since the book came out to enter the celebrity world, let's say. And I've been to a few award shows, but uh, this past year, in 2012, I was able to be a bleacher creature. A bleacher creature. Yes, on the red carpet at the Oscars. One of those crazy people screaming out the celebrities' names as they walked past on their way to the Academy Awards. And it's all deductible now. Yes, exactly. It was a tax-deductible trip. But what's cool about that is that my audience, my Facebook fans, my Twitter followers, you know, they all got a sneak peek uh, Mm -hmm. of something that, you know, I basically am just doing because it's fun for me personally, but... I'm able to, I was able to say I'll be tweeting live from the red carpet at the Academy Awards, and it completely fits. There's no disconnect between Donna on the platform and Donna in her personal life. All right, we're once again going to be talking about the convention, but a different aspect of the convention, the very exciting and important, the Cavett Institute. Now, I'm here with Dick Brusso and Christy Ward. And Dick and Christy are co-chairs of the Cabot Institute. So, Dick, let's kind of first start with, when we talk about the Cabot Institute, who exactly within our NSA family are we talking to right now? The aspiring speaker. The aspiring emerging speaker. Now, uh, they are actually part, and they're listening right now, going, they're talking directly to us. <laughs> Most of the people who would go to the Cabot Institute are those who are part of the Academy currently. That's right. They pay a fee of $175 to be a member of the Academy and $49 a month to take advantage of the different benefits that we offer Academy members throughout the year. And as a bonus to kind of wrap up their year as an Academy member, they get to go to the Cabot Institute, which is an all-day event that takes place the day before the annual convention. So this year, that's on Friday, July 13th from 7.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. And I will say this, I've talked to many of our professional members over the years, and a number have attended the Cabot Institute and said it's one of the best events that they've ever attended. Lexons. All right, Christy, let's turn to you. It's time to let people know. It's like, okay, enough framing. Tell me how wonderful it is. What What's going to be there? We're going to have a real emphasis on the four E's, which are expertise, enterprise, ethics, and eloquence. The entire day is wrapped around taking you from free to fee. Free to fee. Free to fee. That's right. And we've got a great group of folks that are going to talk about fantastic content that drives you to your next level so that you're the expert. How do you take your content, take it to the next level? We have people like Aldana Ambler, Bill Whitley, Steve Lashansky. We're going to do an entire session with Pam Lantos, who, as we all know, is a marketing guru and is going to help us take our businesses to the next level in that regard. We're also going to talk about the ethics E and 
that's one that we're going to have several of our experts, including Frank Beccaro, Al McCree, some folks talk about what is really involved from the platform and how do we need to keep ourselves safe, make sure that we are doing the right thing for each other as well as this profession. And then we're going to talk about there's no one way to do this business. And we're bringing in several experts who do their business with different models. Are they going to talk um, about different business models? Different business models, different ways with the uh, enterprise uh, competency being focused on here. Tom Winninger, Naomi Rohde. You're going to hear from some folks that really have been there, done that, so that uh, people can realize that there's more than one way to do this business. If, if I was a member, I think that would probably be the biggest benefit for me to go to something like that because you know I've got my business model but who's to say that I couldn't have a better business model well and if you've been in NSA very long you know that there are a lot of different ways to do this and be highly highly successful because right, some um, of us have gone from free to fee back to free and, <laughs> and now working our way back to fee right. just saying okay right. and we're going to close the day with platform excellence and focusing on that eloquence competency and we're going to do this with a special star a new right star in NSA named Allison Massari, who, if you were there last year, won the So You Think You Can Speak contest. Mm, yes. And Allison's going to share some of her things with us. She's uh, recently been on TED, as a matter of fact. So if you think that NSA can't launch your career, you need to be at the Cabot Institute. Oh, yeah! And now it's time for an awesome excerpt. This month, we hear a brief 3-minute and 27-second clip from John Crudelli, CSP. John has been a speaker for over 25 years. He's made over 4,500 presentations to 2 million-plus people. He demonstrates craft on the platform. Here's what to listen for. How he shifts from fast to slow, uses sound effects, and effortlessly manages call and response, all to set up the impact of his key point. Well, I just get a few minutes with you, so I want to touch on a couple things and let's see where this might go. I get a chance to speak with elementary, junior high, and high school students all around the United States and Canada. I think we can learn the most from elementary children. And then we can learn the most about ourselves from adolescence. And we can find out, in contrast, what we need to remember so we can decide what we need to be going forward. You see, when elementary children come to programs, we don't place them in seats like this. They get way too much space. You stick a kindergarten auditorium seat, and they're going to be sitting here with their little arms way out like this. And then they start squeaking in the chairs, and their little legs end up going like this, you know? And they're in the seats, pushing them up and down. And before you know it, kindergartners are like looking between their legs. And so with elementary children, you set them on the floor, right? You get them their own little tile to sit on. Their buns are like suction cups. And they just sit there, you know, and they can't wait to participate. And their little hands are like, by the time we're adults, we just cross our arms and go, I'm over here, I'm awesome if you need me. <laughs> See, some of you are so filled with opinions that you don't have any room for truth. Some of us are so filled with ourselves that we don't have anything, any room for anything new. If you can rest in the question today, you'll attract the answer. That's where elementary kids are all the time. But if you think you know the answer, it's going to be like the stories of people that waited two, three, and four years before they got started. Elementary children are free. Let's discover where their freedom comes from. Elementary children, when they raise their hands, they're like, they can't wait to participate. They want to save the world. They want to help the homeless. They want to help the environment. You have a food drive in elementary school. All the canned goods from your house end up at school. 
And as parents, you have to like sign up to get some of it back. <laughs> right? So, who are elementary children focused on, themselves or others? On what they can get or what they can give? How people are different or how they're the same? Fill in the... You're catching? Good. Think about it. Elementary children are free because they're focused not on themselves but on others. Not on how they can get but how they can give. Not because of the difference, because how they're the same. That's where they're free. Think about the next time you're fighting with your spouse. Who you focus on, others or yourself? On how you can give or what you wanted to get? On how you're the same or you focused on the differences? Who you focused on? How's that feel? You're in an argument. What is love? Love seeks to give, lust seeks to get. Love seeks to give, lust seeks to receive. Love is the giving of, lust is the striving for. So you're giving a hug or taking a hug. Giving a kiss or taking a kiss. Love is selfless, lust is selfish. Love gives then forgives, lust gets then forgets. As you go out to talk to people in your business, are you there to love them or lust them? Are you there to give or to use? Somebody who knows they're being used will lead to resentment. You cannot love someone that you know is using you. Resentment turned inward leads to depression. So when you look at somebody that you're going to offer an opportunity to, are you looking at how you can give for what's in it for them? Are you looking at how you can get for what's in it for you? Recently, I attended a meeting of my own NSA Colorado chapter, which I never miss if I'm in town. I was on a panel with CSP Ruby Newell Legner and CSP Scott Halford to discuss the life of a road warrior. We were each sharing our preferences and techniques for making frequent travel more pleasant, organized, and bearable. What was fascinating for the chapter members and me was discovering just how different our road warrior responses were from one another. Ruby, Scott, and I have all been in this business over 20 years, yet we each approach travel quite differently. I'm going to recap the most distinct approaches. Take packing, for example. Scott packs for comfort. He travels with candles, really, because he uses them at home to mellow the light. So candlelight in the hotel bathroom and sleeping room is a calming visual for him. He also packs a TheraBand so he can exercise and stretch in his room. Scott said that he always brings a swimsuit just in case, but admits he rarely uses it. He made us laugh when he told us about his favorite must-have comfort item, underwear. He finds they're just useful in general, so he makes sure to pack some. I am not going to comment on that one. Now, unlike Scott, Ruby packs for convenience. Women often have a hard time carrying on due to the limitations on liquids. So Ruby just doesn't fight it. She always checks a bag and enjoys having her full-size products on hand. She knows she takes a risk that her baggage won't arrive and waits longer in baggage claim, but it's important for her to have her regular hair products. And if you've ever seen Ruby's hair, you'll agree the effort is well worth it. Now, in vivid contrast to packing for comfort or convenience, I pack for nimbleness. 
I do everything in my power to never check a bag. Unless I'm going to an NSA convention, of course. I want to be mobile and able to hop on a different plane if needed. Most of my products don't even need to be in my one-quart plastic baggie because I've discovered non-liquid versions for my essential items, such as makeup cakes and lotion bars. When the facilitator asked the panel about life balance and travel, Ruby's response was basically, what balance? She freely admitted she's a workaholic and basically works all the time, except when she's with her husband, of course. And due to the nature of her work, she could be in one location for a week. So when she arrives for a speaking engagement, she spends maximum time with her clients developing deep relationships. Scott uses his travel as an opportunity for leisure time. Before he leaves, he tries to find something interesting to do at the destination and spends time out and about rather than sitting in his hotel room. As soon as he lands and calls the client, he considers himself on the clock and he is at their disposal. So if they invite him to dinner, he's available. I, however, like to know in advance where I'm expected to be and at what time because I like to work while I'm on the road. In fact, I work every spare second at the airport, on the plane, and in my hotel room. I even have a car service to and from the airport so I can work on the way. Why? Because I want to be finished with my work when I get home so I can focus all my time and energy on my family. So I don't nap or watch the movie on planes, read pleasure books, or watch TV in the hotel room. Nothing. In this way, all my spare time at home is playtime with my family. It was fascinating how uniquely we approached just this one aspect of the speaking business, travel. Even though we differed on many things, some we all agreed on, such as the importance of flying one airline and staying in one hotel chain to get status, using airport clubs, never booking the last flight possible to get you there, etc. The session really drove home for me something that I love about NSA. There is rarely one way to do things. And success in this business comes in many shapes and forms. NSA is a place that is quite tolerant of others. And we love sharing what works for us and inviting others to adopt it if it works for them. Even though at some level we all compete with each other, NSA has an abundance mentality that believes there is enough to go around for everyone. I love the spirit of NSA, and you'll experience this spirit at our annual NSA convention this summer, July 14th through 17th in Indianapolis, Indiana. So plan to be there in July and experience the spirit of NSA firsthand.
Each month, VOE closes with a special segment called VO Me. That's basically commentary by me about some aspect of platform skills, communication, marketing, or just something that strikes my fancy. Today, the topic is the continuum. Now, it may sound harsh, but one of the most motivating benefits I get each year from going to the NSA convention is the speaker continuum. On one extreme end, I see speakers clearly better than me showcasing powerful platform skills, marketing techniques, and business models, and I go, wow, gotta get me some of that. But just as importantly, I come in contact with the other end of the spectrum. There are newbie speakers or struggling speakers, and I go, wow, look how far I've come. And then there's the mighty middle of the continuum. I see some speakers who are not as good as me, but nevertheless are doing much better business-wise. And others who are way better than me on the platform, but nevertheless are not doing as well. And that makes me want to know why. The continuum provides motivating context. And that motivating context will help us all seize the value of the education and advice coursing through the convention in July. Well, that's it for this month. Let's keep the conversation going on VOE topics by commenting on our Facebook posts. And we'll talk again in June. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.